Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, I'm rejoined by pricing and market access expert Keith Kelly to talk payer power. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. Payer Power 2 next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Keith Kelly, thanks for joining me again on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. So when we talked last time, we talked about payer power and through the magic of podcasting and um, red tape. It's been 18 months since we actually recorded that podcast. <laughs> 18 months is an eternity in the payer world. Well, and 18 months has been an eternity in 2017 generally. I think most of us would <laughs> feel that way one way or another. Fair enough. I think what has changed, Jeff, is we're starting to see the implementation of the strategies that payers were starting to bring uh, roughly two years ago. Um, so exclusion lists are now making their third or fourth iteration, and we're beginning to see impacts on what has that meant. Exclusion list? Uh, so basically non-coverage for something that's non-preferred. Um, you know, 15 years ago, it was non-coverage or non-preferred meant the difference in a $15 copay. Today, it means a very binary system by which drugs are excluded. And what we're seeing is the macro implications at a large PBM level of how those controls have been implemented. And I think the podcast is appropriately titled, at least on the pharmacy benefit side, the the power has shifted very much so to the payer side. The area that I'd like to talk about when we think about that dynamic is related to data that was recently released from ESI in their drug trend report. This is Express Scripts, uh, the large pharmacy benefit manager. Yes, exactly. And Gary Stetlin, he's the senior vice president of clinical research and chief innovation officer. And he is happy to report on the first page of his drug trend report that prescription drugs have increased in spending for pharmacy benefit products by 3.8% per person. He goes on to say not 10, not 30%, 3.8%. A little bit, uh, very much uh, boisterous language from a PBM. So this is, I think, probably surprising to most people hearing this within the sound of any podcast in America is that drug prices have not risen 10%, 10%, 20%, 30%. I think we only hear the top line. What's going on here? Yeah, it's one of my new favorite statistics. I think if you just surveyed folks on the street and asked them, how much are drug spending costs are going up by? Um, very few people would guess 3.8%. Was that drug spending costs or drug prices? And that's, and that's exactly the problem. So it's neither drug prices nor drug spending. Um, Gary is reporting on a specific niche of drug spend, spend per member per month on pharmacy benefits. Okay. So a drug that would be included there would be any of your subcutaneous injections billed through the pharmacy benefit Mm -hmm. or any of your regular therapeutics, you could call regular therapeutics, things that you'd pick up at a regular CVS pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Um, But it would not include buy and bill medications. So one of the challenges there are the medical benefit products. So one of the challenges in that 3.8% is it does not capture where a lot of the growth in the industry has been, which has been on the IV infusion side. So he's, as a PBM, he is entirely focused on pharmacy benefits. And I think this is going to turn into an important learning for the pharmaceutical industry in terms of the haves and the have-nots in terms of therapeutic categories. So what do you mean by that? So we talked about buy-in bill. We talked about specialty benefits, medical benefits, and then the regular pills and potions side of the business that you see in a retail pharmacy you pick up, say, at a CVS or Walgreens. what What I think I'm hearing you saying is that the CVS Walgreens normal part of the business that many of us deal with when we're not extremely sick, we're talking about 
that business being less of a, an exciting business from a, a pharmaceutical manufacturer's perspective, or at least the amount that they're able to raise prices or increase spend. Am well, I am I reading it correctly? Yeah, I think that you're you're reading it correctly. I think that what we're what we're where we're probably netting out in terms of what this all means, this dramatic increase in payer control, is that it's going to be implemented on an uneven basis. So if you want to have a blanket statement like payers are powerful, that's true. Um, but it's it's also true to say that there's areas where payers' controls are not effective at all. Mm-hmm. And that that 3.8% highlights the, the effectiveness of PBMs on pharmacy benefit products. It does not at all take into account cost relief on the medical benefit side. And I think that the reason I'm being choiceful and how we're organizing that thinking is that Specialty products have plenty of competition if they're in the pharmacy benefit. Um, there's plenty of products that are injectables, high technology, biologics, have amazing competition. This is not a – the haves and have-nots is not defined as specialty versus primary care. Um, it has not to do whether or not you're seeing a specialist or whether or not you're seeing um, a primary care doctor. What it has to do with is, how, is which benefit is it affecting and that being the medical benefit or on the pharmacy benefit side. And I think that – Right now, that's where the focus of the payer power has been. So when we think about that, we should think about the pharmacy benefit side as being one where they're able to manage. And and medical, they either are unable or at least haven't managed as well the costs. Right. And I, I think the analogy I use there is a, is a baseball analogy. I think that we're in the seventh or eighth inning mm-hmm. of payer power with respect to the bar to the pharmacy benefit and the first or second inning in terms of the medical benefit. So that's not to say there's no management of medical benefit products or that payers are not making any impact there. Um, But it is to say that it is early on in the game in terms of seeing material effects in the cost curve on that side. So I don't know if we haven't talked about this beforehand, so I don't know if this is something that you've looked into before, but why doesn't a, a payer just put everything on the pharmacy benefit side and use the tools that they really have and really have uh, sharpened? It's really because a payer is probably the most poorly defined term within the industry. So what is a payer? Is a payer a patient who pays their out-of-pockets and their co-pays? People wouldn't think of patients as payers, but Mm -hmm. they very much are. Um, In my construct, I think that the payer is really the funder of healthcare. The funding of healthcare is predominantly in the U.S. coming from either government or from your employer. And part of the challenge is that employers have boxed up their pharmacy benefits and outsourced them to PBMs. And there's been less activity on the medical benefit side in terms of employers asking to bend the cost curve on the medical benefit drug side. Um, There's also some structural challenges in terms of aggressive contracting on the medical benefit side. So that sort of saves competition from itself. And there's no real sign that that will change in the near future. There have been some statutory changes like 340B that make make considerable discounts available to hospitals. uh, And effectively, we're seeing 340B sort of be a funder of hospitals. No political statements on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly isn't eroding into the margins of medical benefit products. But what we haven't seen is sort of this fight to the death competition amongst medical benefit products where preference or access to an exclusion list is going to rule the day. And when we talk about preference, we're talking about having one drug in a lower copay or not in a coinsurance status where another drug might not be have preference and be a non-preferred drug and where they it's very difficult for either the physician to prescribe the drug because the prior authorization is very long and arduous or 
it's not even on formulary. Uh, it's excluded or the copays are very high or coinsurance. Am, am I understanding that's a, what? That's exactly right. And um, that, that measure of preference is not really available or accessible in the medical benefit. One of the things that this causes is a, is a real unintended consequence in terms of potential for future investment within the industry. So I think maybe five or six years ago, pharma began to digest the idea that my new products planning teams mm-hmm. and my BD and licensing teams need to think about payers. And so the payer question started to work its way into earlier conversations of, well, which area should I have my labs focusing on? And which areas should I have my business developers, the folks who are dropping into labs and buying products, focusing on? And a lot of companies used um, principles of unmet medical need. You know, if if we solve a really important unmet medical need, good things will happen. And by and large, that that theory had maybe a 70% rate of success, right? If you searched for unmet medical needs... They generally had a good output. But now there's there's the problem where you're having an unintended consequence here where pharma is really skewing away its pipeline from anything that falls into this primary care, hyper-competitive pharmacy benefit space. And it's going to really affect what types of drugs we see in the future. And I'm not so sure that that was the intended consequence, right? I think the intended consequence was to bend the cost curve. I'm not necessarily sure that it was designed to bend the research curve so far in favor of certain drugs and so far out of favor for other drugs. We see certainly part of that in something like orphan drugs uh, being because they have better financial um, incentives associated with them, some cost paybacks on clinical trials and also some of the time back on the clock um, that we do put the uh, we do put more dollars towards uh, indications that are very very rare and that's intended right but the unintended consequence also I'm I'm hearing is that it means that things that affect many many patients something like diabetes or heart uh, or, or cardiovascular problems those get relatively short shrift right and I think there's a couple of really interesting products that are coming to market the one that you didn't mention Jeff is asthma I think asthma is a place where there's a lot of a lot of opportunity in the future to look at this with a contrarian viewpoint. So I guess in, in terms of my viewing of the market, I think there's a healthy dynamic taking place in terms of investment in orphan drugs, a healthy dynamic taking place in terms of investments in um, oncology and um, immunology. I think that there's a contrarian play that we'll start to see in the future where some pharma manufacturers are going to figure out that we have a technology that's good enough, so important that we think we can push it through and convince payers that certain pharmacy benefit products are not incremental in their changes and incremental in their improvements, right? So I think it's a it's a both-end situation. I think it's just that pharma will look at this with a balance and saying, you know, maybe I can have an area of my company that's focused in some of these areas that haven't been the places that people have played right now in large part because of margin pressure. And when we talk about why that contrarian view might exist, one is a positive and would be that it's just underinvested. But the other is a negative that we look at specialty pharmacy, oncology products. We look at um, immunology products. We look at some other anti-infectives. And we say that those are getting relatively good access now. If we call the ball in the future, They've got a long ways to go. You talked about it being the first or second inning. There's a long ways to go where the payers can have a lot of tools that they've been using for these big spend categories, but they haven't been using. Uh, 
I certainly hope not. I think you're you're right. It's possible. I mean, I I kind of hope that um, the halo that has been cast around oncology and orphan diseases in particular is going to result in curing some things that we thought were uncurable. Uh, and I hope that that relative protection continues because it's having an amazing effect on the ultimate outputs of this industry. It's having that effect with some people raising eyebrows on what's the cost to cure these things. Mm-hmm. Those, those hard questions are being asked, but I, I certainly hope that that perseveres. I, and I think that that com- topic of conversation that pharma is moving into oncology and rare diseases is well kept and well understood. I'm seeing an opportunity where pharma may be able to get into the primary care spaces and into some places that have been relatively underdeveloped, look at problems differently, look at investment differently and say, you know, what's it going to take for me to bring the next non-specialty blockbuster drug to market? What is what is that going to be? What is going to be the next non-injectable, infusible blockbuster, right? So we had the statins for a while, then we had the atypical antipsychotics. Um, what is that going to look like? I'm excited for that product. And I think the company that pulls that off deserves a lot of credit because I think that they are going to show that there's still a still a lot of unmet needs out there in terms of human health and in addition to the areas that are already being sufficiently funded. Do you see that as a payer problem where the payer is the customer that has to be sold on this primarily or well, that, is it something else? That brings us back to this 3.8% on the pharmacy benefit side, right? So the question will be um, – Will payers allow that to take place? Um, how thoughtful will they be? And what's going to cut through sort of a payer's perception that I'm in control of this decision? I think that's going to have a, a lot to say about the types of products that we see in the future. And how do we do that? I mean, we have the product. The product is what it is. How are we going to be able to bend the curve? Are we talking about changing clinical trials in terms of how we go for endpoints that a payer cares about? Are we choosing products to end license based on this? What's your thinking there? I think it's going to be, um, that is a great question. I think it's going to be a situation where a manufacturer demonstrates that they are able to successfully bring a traditional pills and potions blockbuster to the market and make it happen. And other manufacturers then look at their pipelines and say, huh, Maybe this part of the pipeline that I was neglecting, actively selling off, didn't find strategically attractive, ending this study is an area that I do want to play in. I think that's the behavior. And when, when, when different drugs get new approvals and hit new milestones, we see all those things in the news media. What we don't see quite as much of is when organizations are going through an asset reprioritization and sort of casting items off. Mm-hmm. And I think that at some point, you might see a new pharmaceutical company born out of that kind of thinking, right? I can get into financial markets. I can tap cheap capital. I can buy up some of these things that are perceived as non-competitive, mm-hmm. not strategically aligned to where I want to play, but I can build a different type of company to do that. I think we'll see that pharmaceutical manufacturer in the next three to five years. Their payer strategies are going to be very difficult, and that's going to be a big mountain for them. How do you win with payers with a with a product like that? Is it is it data? Yeah. What, a, what data? You know, I, I was asked that question recently because I think oncology, immunology, we see those as the one and two places to play. Um, I think there's a couple of other places that you might see attractiveness. And I think that's where you have drugs that are value justified. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that if you can get a fully insured payer, it's going to be impossible with the PBMs and more and more lives go into PBMs every day. But if you get a fully insured payer and you can say, my drug legitimately does offset medical costs, I think my drug should be accessible. And a PBM doesn't care because they don't pay for the medical costs. Exactly. And But you know, the, the numbers of drugs that have actually gotten to the degree of power where they can say that um, they're, that that's effectively a number needed to treat of one, right? That's what I'm, I'm highlighting, right, is, is effectively NNTs of one, not on number needed to treat to prevent an event, but number needed to treat to prevent economic outcomes that are not there. So I think that's where you need to look at it and say, where are the places in human health where we just haven't made that many advances? I, I think one of them is nephrology. Mm-hmm. I think you may see certain kidney products that reach there where, you know, it's, I think in, in every U.S. town in New Jersey, now we have a diner and a dialysis center. <laughs> and I wonder just how much money gets spent uh, in that way. And how do you, how do you think about that? And, and how do you say, you know, if you had a product that really brought that kind of value to that organ, which has not really seen anything interesting happen in the last 10 years. Uh, I think that company will have a an easy time convincing even the the most cynical health plan that that product needs to be accessible. One of the ways that we've seen value being measured or at least captured or at least suggested that it's captured by different payers has been these so-called innovative contracts or value-based contracts. Oh yes. Tell me about value-based contracts. <laughs> um you know I think that the challenge with Value-based contracts is first on the on the nomenclature. It sort of implies that every other contract is not valuable, um, which is it's a problem and a conflict in terms, right? Because that every other contract means that we're reducing costs to the system, which I think is part of the system's goal, right? So um, I think a lot of contracts have value, um, value for the pharmaceutical sector, and certainly if you look at pharmaceutical manufacturers' margins, um, a topic we talked about in our first podcast, you know. Pairs are winning this war. 3.8% seems to me that in certain pockets, certain battles are absolutely being won by payers. I have a very specific take on value and outcomes contracting. And it sort of comes down to looking at um, the structure of a health plan and some of the things that they have to report. When we think of United Healthcare, I don't think United Healthcare is a payer at all. I think United Healthcare is an administrator mm-hmm. and that United Healthcare serves Part D sponsorship, which is ultimately derived from government or serves employers who hire United Healthcare and manages a benefit. But the ultimate payers are either government or your employer or yourself in terms of your copay and your out-of-pocket or your deductible. On the other side, though, as a result of that, um, that makes United Healthcare be an incredibly scrutinized entity. That means that in certain government books of business, United Healthcare's margins are capped. And United Healthcare can make no more profit than a certain amount of profit in certain books of business. Um, they cap their medical loss ratios. Mm-hmm. Um, even when those medical loss ratios are capped, United Healthcare still looks like an unbelievably attractive stock to purchase in the market and has had tremendous economic performance. Um, so, so what exactly does that mean? Um, that means that in some ways, we have to be very mindful of the fact that these companies have some of the same PR pressures as pharmaceutical manufacturers have. Are, are you telling me value-based contracts are not really about value? They're about public relations? Well, I, I think that the, the public relations aspect of value-based contract has been there on the pharma side for quite some time. I think it's well understood that 
that that is there. But yes, I, I think that if you look at PBMs asking for value-based contracts, it's because they have this one-sided view of the world where when they're talking with an employer, they're going to say, I'm going to drive down your costs. And the employer will say, not my overall costs, just my pharmacy costs. And ESI wants to be able to say, or any PBM, any PBM would like to say, I will drive down your costs because I have these innovative value-based agreements that I pursue. So I, I actually am now beginning to believe that a lot of this value-based contracting is precipitating from payers, but not with the purposes of satiating these needs in the market that you're seeing with pharma, but rather to satiate the need in the market with employers who are asking the question, exactly what is my PBM delivering for me? Keith, you said that patients are payers earlier. What do you mean by that? And what does that mean for pharma in general? Um, I think what it means is that some of this celebration on a PBM's part that their per member per month drug costs are only 3.8% is a little premature. I think that payers have proven effective at lowering pharmacy costs for pharmacy benefits. But in terms of lowering overall healthcare costs for stakeholders, such as employers or such as patients, I think we're no closer. What I mean by that is that if you compare the U.S. with other nations, you will see that on average, the government in the United States pays about the same as other governments in terms of healthcare expenditures. On a per patient basis. On a per patient basis. And this is data from PBS NewsHour. It's a really great statistic. What they have on top of it, though, is that in addition to what government pays, the patient pays about the same amount out of their own pocket, which is a remarkable thing. And it has a function to do with – and that, that also includes your employer funding, right? But it, it does mean that that's where the healthcare system gets twice as expensive as other healthcare systems. And I think that's a, a huge issue where I think that the payers are very good – the payers here being PBMs have done a really good job of driving down cost in competitive categories on the pharmacy benefit. But in terms of overall bending the cost curve, I think we're not achieving the goals that were laid out in terms of other parts of healthcare. And we're having these unintended consequences where certain seemingly important public health challenges are probably not getting the time, effort, and attention that they could probably get. When we think about what this means finally for a pharma company, I've heard a couple of things. One, in due diligence, take care and make sure that you take a sufficient look at what a payer thinks. That price may have been a plug number before or something that was assumed. It cannot be assumed and needs to be checked on. That's kind of number one. Number two, there's some therapeutic areas, perhaps even in the um, – even in the retail pharmacy area that have been underinvested in recent years for reasons that are very good reasons, um, but now maybe uh, turning back. What else should you think of as a pharma company about payers and the, the new power that they have? I think that on the payers and what new power they have and what it means for your pharma company is there's an opportunity to bring different types of products to market. There's also a need or an opportunity to have a more advanced dialogue around savings that just aren't on the pharmacy benefit side and having that conversation with more of the ecosystem than just the administrator or the health plan. Having that conversation on savings with the folks that are going to accrue savings is really, really important and pushing that disintermediation out. Pharma companies have had employer groups and then not have employer groups for some time. It's the first group to go when pharma companies reorg is the folks that call on employers. And in this disintermediated environment, it's really hard to have a conversation on overall value 
when so many companies have put their medical risks and their pharmacy risks into two separate baskets. Um, so that's a real challenge. And I think that the ability to bring those arguments and get upstream with employers, with government, is going to be something that, that separates pharma companies in the future. It's not easy work. It's not something that's simple, but it's something that I think really does need to happen. And with patients as payers, are we talking about copay cards, something else? Yes. Um, that's a really good question. With patients as payers, what has changed in the last 18 months is that more pharma companies are actively recognizing their role as reinsurance for really rotten pharmacy benefits. So companies are realizing that I have to make available more funds in terms of my patient assistance programs or my copay cards. I don't think there's a way around that. Um, and I think it's actually a, a big patient benefit. But the effect it's having on margins of manufacturers is certainly not um, certainly hard to miss these days. Keith Kelly, thanks very much for joining me again to talk about payer power. Um, have you back anytime. Thanks, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk to a particular challenge that you have at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. In every U.S. town in New Jersey now, we have a diner and a dialysis center.